I'm Jeff Williams from Brooklyn, New York. I'm Natalie from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm Matt from Cambridge. The Sound of Young America is an independent production. Supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to support the show like I did, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's the Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program, Chris Anderson, is editor of a little magazine you might have heard of called Wired. He's also the author of Free, the Future of a Radical Price. It's an exploration of the idea of free, particularly in the digital marketplace. Uh, Chris Anderson, welcome to the Sound of Young America. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Jeff. So I guess the natural question is... Um, Free is an important idea in the um, in the world in which you work, the world of digital media, and of course the world of print media, where your day job is. Um, why did you want to put your stamp on the idea by blogging about it and talking about it and writing this book? Yeah, you know um, the the uh, the magnetic lure of free sucked in another good man. Um, Free is really misunderstood. You know, um, I, I guess free is one of those words we take for granted. And the more I started thinking about it, the more I realized just how changed our meaning, our relationship, the, the economics of free is and how we've never really said and talked about it. There's no book on it. it you see a clear generational divide. I tell my kids, you know, daddy wrote a book on free. And they're like, oh, dad, you didn't. And I'm like, yeah, it's about how stuff can be free online. And like, duh, dad, it's digital. I'm like, oh, okay. So, and then I tell like my 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 peers, um, you know, I wrote a book on free about how stuff can be free online, and they're like, you didn't. I'm like, <laughs> I, I, I did, and they're like, don't you know there's no such thing as a free lunch, you know that, you know that you get what you pay for, um, and you know basically between duh and no way, there struck me as a good subject to, uh, you know, there's, there's a as I say the most misunderstood four letter word beginning with F in the English language. And, you know, and this exploration into the semantics and economics and, you know, businesses built around free turned out to be bookworthy. You know, you go back even further than the current generational divide between, um, you know, I guess it would be Generation X and earlier and Generation Y and later, all the way back into uh, earlier times and explore the idea that free didn't even exist as an economic idea uh, functionally speaking, for an extraordinarily long time. Did that surprise you when you discovered it? You know, I guess I thought that um, there were so many things about free I hadn't really thought about. Like, you know, one, this, you know, free is such a kind of conventional marketing technique. You know, buy one, get one free, free gift inside, free parking, you know, razors and blades, all that stuff that I thought, you know, that's been around forever. It turns out it's been around since 1896, exactly 1896. And it wasn't even King Gillette and the razor and blades. It was actually uh, Jell-O and Jell-O recipe books, which were distributed for free so that drive demand for this new powdered substance that you could make a delicious treat out of. And uh, the idea of you give away one thing to sell something else started then. Um, now, you know, another thing I never thought about was the word in English, you know, has two meanings, right? So in open source software, we talk about free as in speech versus free as in beer. But this is just a bug in English. In other languages, in Italian, Latinate languages, Spanish, French, etc., there's two words, right? There's Libra and there's gratis. There's free as in freedom, and that's all good, nothing to worry about there. And then there's gratis, which is pretty much a trick. So Libra is positive associations, gratis is negative associations, and they're pretty cleanly separated. In English, we munge them up together into one word. 
free and, and we sort of were drawn to the positive associations of free and then tricked by the gratis associations of free and, and that pretty much defined 20th century free. Then you get to the digital age, you know, the internet, and now free is not a trick anymore. You know, Google really doesn't show up in your credit card statement. You know, what's going on there? And thus, thus the book. In contrast to, say, the three free issues of Wired magazine that I get at the counter of Best Buy. So um, that would that that those are atoms. Those are atoms. You've got some atoms there. Atoms. Atoms can't really be free. Atoms have to be you know a trick one way or another. Now it, it just so happens that you know there is precedent for free being really free, and that's called media. Right? Radio's free to air. Some of your listeners may not may be listening to this for no price. Television born free to air. Our websites are, are free. The idea is that you use free to get a big audience, then you s- sell the attention to advertisers. That's, 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 you know, one person, one group of customers pays for another group of customers, and there's nothing radically new about that. What the internet has done is obviously taken that far beyond media, far beyond broadcast, and it's not the only free business model online. Well, let's talk a little bit about what free was and what it became in this generational shift. So you use the example of Jello giving out free recipe booklets in order to stimulate demand for uh, packaged gelatin, which was a new product at the turn of the uh, 20th century. Those th- those are the free models that are, in some way, as you describe them, a trick. The idea of giving something away in order to sell other further stuff down the line. Mm-hmm. What changes between the giving away the razor and selling the blades, which, as you describe, isn't actually a literal historical fact. It's a something sort of an approximation or a mythification mm-hmm. of a mm-hmm. literal historical fact. And today's Google. What's the difference between those two? So the the you know that kind of, the old free is not free because you're paying. You're paying sooner or later. You're not paying for the razor, but later on you'll pay for the blade. It's it's you know it's it's. It's coming out of one pocket or the other. Um, the internet model of free is somebody's paying, but it's probably not you. You know, in the case of Google, it's an advertiser who's paying. In the case of, you know, Flickr or Flickr Pro, for example, it's a minority or subsidizing the majority. You know, 80%, 90% get the product for free. Some of them choose to buy the premium form for more storage. And because the cost of serving those free users is so low that a tiny number of a relatively small fraction of paid users can subsidize everything else. So the difference between free of uh, the last century and free of this century is is that this one's, you know, someone's still paying, but it's most likely not you. Let's take the example of media, which is a a model that uh, we have a lot of experience with that we also see um, in the digital world. Um, in media, the uh, cost is borne by advertisers. Now, those advertisers bear that cost with the understanding that um, I will buy something from them. So how is that one not a trick? Well, you know. If uh, we're going to talk about tricks. Sure. Um, you're watching the Super Bowl. Okay, there is an ad for dentures on the Super Bowl. Um, there are many things wrong with this picture. You know, one of them is that that's not appropriate to you. The other is that it's interrupting your experience. It's annoying, etc. But the you know, the idea that you would waste the time of ninety percent of the audience to reach maybe ten percent for whom it was appropriate, and that that ten percent might at some later date go and actually buy that product, and they would pay more for that product so that they would subsidize the marketing and the circle. The circle is complete. You know, that is the old model. Um, so, you know, once again in that model, you know, someone's paying, but it's probably not you. Um, in this case, the advertiser is paying directly, and because the ads are so poorly targeted, it's probably not even you buying that product. 
But you know, but somebody paid more for that product to pay to pay for the ad. So you know, the idea. So that's really free in the sense that that you know, again, it's not your money. Um, now the internet is takes that to the nth degree. It's you know, you know, once again. You know, somebody's paying, but it's probably not. You know, the difference between that is that because the costs are so low, you can extend that beyond broadcast stuff to software, services, entertainment, you know, etc. Um, you don't have a free rider problem. The fact that somebody else, the fact that people are listening to your podcast and not paying you does not matter that much to you because it doesn't cost you anything. Am I right about that, by the way? Does it not cost you? It cost me well. It's certainly uh, trending towards zero, especially relative to the cost of me, say, burning a CD and, and mailing it to tens of well, thousands. So of your, your podcasts are on iTunes. Yeah, and and iTunes picks up the bandwidth. No, they don't. Oh, I have to pay the bandwidth. But but as you you make a very convincing argument in the book that the cost of delivery trends towards zero, right, over time. So what that means is that. You can make a good living on tiny, tiny participation rates. Um, but you know, let's say let's say that you've got a um, well, let's say your Twitter for, okay, ex- for sure. example. So Twitter has what's the latest number account of what 175, 200 million? I mean, they're big numbers, right? A whole bunch, I would say, approximately a whole bunch. A whole bunch. Yeah. I haven't looked at the latest research. Yeah, yeah, within many, or, within the order of magnitude, a whole bunch. Um, Twitter is what 40 people at this point. You know. They've got some servers, they've got some bandwidth, but you know, by and large, they've got a network television-sized audience at a kind of a bagel shop, you know, budget, um, you know, within an order of magnitude. Uh, so the, how, that's you're all, talking in this case, in just so people can follow us. This is an amazing bagel shop. It's it's an it's an amazing bagel yeah. shop in term in terms of its presence, in terms of its participation, in terms of its in terms of its impact, brand reach, etc. But you know the economics are sort of bagel shop sized economics. Certainly in terms of revenue, it's a bagel shop that has not yet even opened its doors. Again, amazing bagel shops. They have forty people, so they're making pretty great bagels, or a lot of bagels, or maybe like some. I just don't want to get people confused with this bagel shop analogy. Okay, okay. We'll we'll have it a uh, you know a a small chain of bagel shops. Okay, gotcha. All right. So you know that's only possible. You could not get that kind of audience in the 20th century. You know, or, you know, 20 years ago, because you know you would need if you wanted to be a broadcaster, you need a radio tower, you need a license, etc. If you're going to want to print a newspaper, you need factories and trucks and newsstand presence, etc. So it's 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 kind of amazing. Now Twitter is free. Um, and people say, well, so, you know, how's that a business model? Well, Twitter could turn on some really simple little monetization engines. They could turn on a little ad here, a little ad there, maybe authenticate a couple, you know, a few users, offer maybe additional services. You could have a Twitter Pro, maybe 0.01% get for the Twitter Pro. It doesn't take much. And suddenly they're cash flow positive, incredibly profitable. You know, life, life is good. Um, that in the real world, you know, in the, in the in the world of atoms, you can't have such trivial percentage of your customers paying and still be profitable because your costs are so high. This is only possible, you know, in in, in the digital world. And the old model was, okay, we'll just slap ads against it and hope for the best. Uh, clearly, the ad market cannot subsidize the entire internet. We've seen the limits of that, not just in recession, but also in terms of the effectiveness of ads. So now we're now we're now we're shipping. So we're shifting towards freemium, the free and premium combination, and. And and so you typically have two products, you know, on your your, your Twitter apps, for example, on your iPhone. Um, you know, mine I use Twitterific, and it says, uh, you know, every now and then it bugs me and says, you know, this one's free and it's got ads, but if you want the ads taken off, upgrade to Twitterific Pro or whatever it's called. Um, I don't know what percentage it do, but um, it you know l- let's imagine it were 
ten percent. Let's imagine it's, it's one percent. You know, one percent would uh, buy the buy the buy the app, but that's one percent of a huge number. You know, tens or thousands or hundreds of thousands. How do they got that huge number because digital distribution allowed them to get a huge number. Small conversion rate, small costs equal profitable business. So uh, let me ask you this question. What's the difference in this world of tiny costs? Um, what's the difference between free and uh, very, very, very cheap? Uh, the economic difference is uh, – the financial difference is relatively small. The psychological difference is night and day. I mean, this is a, a venture capitalist named Josh Kopelman calls this the penny gap, the difference between one penny and zero pennies. There's two problems with a one penny price. You know, so we, we used to talk a lot about micropayments and microtransactions and the idea that you know, people would be paying per minute for your podcast. Or, I used to think a lot about what if everybody who listened to my podcast gave me a nickel. Gave you a nickel, exactly. Oh, or, or man, what if you, be you so loaded, Chris. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah so they didn't. And why, why didn't they? And, and, and the answer is the problem with micropayments is twofold. Um, there, used to be, there used to be two problems. Now there's just one problem with micropayments. But let's start with the original two problems. Um, the first problem is uh, it's a very simple transactional one. It was kind of a, such a hassle to get out your credit card or whatever that it just wasn't worth it for five cents. Now, I think transaction systems are getting better. You know, your iTunes account, your Facebook, your PayPal, your, you know, I'm sure TweetPay. I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of really simple, really simple ways to pay. So maybe it's a one-click kind of experience. Put that aside. Let's deal with a bigger problem, and this is the psychological problem. Um, we have this like imaginary flag in our head that goes up every time there's a price. And that flag is a sort of an ask-yourself-some-questions flag. Is it worth it? Um, do I really want it? How much is it worth? I wonder, I wonder is there something else that's, that, 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 that's cheaper? All these questions we ask ourselves that ask, you know, before we'll, we take out our wallet. Um, you know, it, psychologists call this, economists call these mental transaction costs. And we are nothing if not lazy creatures. We hate work. And thinking about a price is work. So, what free allows you to do is it allows you to act thoughtlessly um, and, and simply. It's just like whatever. Uh, you, know, no, you know, there's no risk associated with it. There's no thinking associated with, associated with it. You just do it. Now, you can still ask yourself, you know, do I like it? Do I want to do more of it? Reputation, attention, things like that. But by taking the psychological, the psychological components of a price off the table, you encourage participation. It lowers the barrier to entry. And so this is a simple test. Let's say that you've made your podcast Five cents, not not please pay five cents, but it's five cents or you can't listen. What fraction of your audience would have disappeared? Um, in my guesstimation, 90% plus. 90% plus. I would have guessed 95%. Yeah. Um, so you've made it, you've decided that um, you'd rather use free to get the largest possible audience and then convert that audience into money through some other way, indirect way, than to force them to pay up front. That is the smart decision. That's what almost everybody does now. So, so games are example. You know, uh, the games industry moved from a, you know, buy a box for fifty bucks business to a free to play online business. Um, what you end up doing is getting is is rather than sort of and you know you want to play you got to pay instead it's you want to play it's free but if you want to play better or faster or 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 you know or more effectively at that point you may you may have to pay. Stick around. We'll have more on the idea of free stuff and its effect on the creative industry. It's The Sound of Young America from PRI Public Radio International. Are you or is your business interested in reaching the Sound of Young America's awesome audience? 
Via podcast, radio, and the World Wide Web, The Sound of Young America can connect you with the only people that matter, the awesome ones. Underwriting on The Sound of Young America reaches tens of thousands of clued-in listeners, and it supports the show, too. If you're interested in underwriting on The Sound of Young America, contact us directly at underwriting at MaximumFun.org. That's underwriting at MaximumFun.org. This September, MaximumFun.org is headed east. You can check out The Sound of Young America Live, our live stage show, in Philadelphia September 16th as part of the Philly Fringe. It's a live Sound of Young America program played out before your very eyes with music, comedy, and interviews. Our guests on the Philadelphia show include the Spinto Band, comics artist Charles Burns, the director of the Mutter Museum, and more. Then the next night, we'll be offering the freewheeling comedy of the Monsters of Podcasting. That's You Look Nice Today and our own Jordan Jesse Go. On the 18th, we'll be headed to New York for a live show at the Jerome L. Green Performance Space at WNYC. My guests include Scott Adsit from the NBC Comedy 30 Rock, musicians Nellie Mackay and Andrew W.K., and much more. Saturday, September 19th, the Monsters of Podcasting hit the UCB Theater in New York. For more information and tickets, visit MaximumFun.org. Production of The Sound of Young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the author of the book Free, Chris Anderson. There's another kind of free that you write about in the book, and it's not about the trending towards free of the cost of delivery or distribution of um, intellectual property ideas, things that can be represented digitally. It's about what people will create for free. Um, I feel like I bring this up on The Sound of Young America about uh, every other month, um, and I think I mentioned it in the other interview. But um, I interviewed Steve Albini, the uh, uh, punk rock and roll super producer and Mm -hmm. uh, uh, musician, and I asked him about the future of the music industry, and he told me, well, the the record industry is pretty much out of luck. Uh, Music will be fine because most people make music not to make money. It'll be a lot more like tennis is what he compared it to. Lots of people play tennis, and not very many of them expect it to be their living. So when there are all these people creating um, for free, for social reasons, uh, for all these non-price economy reasons that you outline in the book, what's the effect on the broader world? What happens when everybody's making a blog and you know, maybe my blog is a C minus, but a C minus blog for me is like an A plus to my mom. You know, I, I was on a radio show this morning here in L.A., and um, I said much the same thing as Steve Albini, and the l- uh, phone lines lit up. <laughs> um, and, you know, fortunately, we didn't have time for me to be savaged at, at, at full length um, on, on, you know, on the radio show. But as, as, I, as, I, as I walked out of the room, I, I said to the producers, you know, I saw there were so many calls. What were they all about? And they're like, they're musicians. They're really angry with you. Um, they say free music is destroying their business. These are professional musicians, and they say they really don't like the fact that other musicians. And by the way, I spent my twenties playing in punk rock bands. Um, you know, and if we got our bar tab picked up, that was awesome. 
you know, just, you know, maybe someday we might might meet a girl, but that never happened. It was just every now and then we might get our, our you know, our, you know, might get our beers paid. If you're going into a genre of music to meet girls, punk rock's the one you want to go into. <sighs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I made lots of mistakes in music, but that that was that was clearly one of them. Um, so, um, you know, but we did it anyway. And of course, you're absolutely right. Lots of people play music, and now, you know. Thank you, Guitar Hero. You know, we all think we can. Um, but for professional musicians, they think that it is incredibly destructive to music, that so many people are giving away their music for free on MySpace or, or whatever. They think it's undermining the value of music and it's making, creating more competition for them and making their lives harder. And I don't doubt it. I think they're probably right. Um, newspaper reporters um, who, uh, who have been the bane of my existence. I'm a media guy, right? I run, I run a magazine. Um, I, you know, I, I work with journalists, and yet journalists are are driving me crazy right now because they are they are at this this point where they still have quite a lot of power in terms of you know their their their, their voice um, but they feel completely desperate in terms of the business so they're incredibly angry and paranoid and scared and they're, but they still have a yeah, bully pulpit on which to yell about it. So, um, so I, so me and my book are now considered the enemies of journalism because I talk about <laughs> I talk about the, the, all the things that people will do for free um, for these non-monetary incentives, and it, and it appears that I'm I'm not only you know I'm not only chronicling the destruction of paid media, but but in some sense hoping for it, um, which would be ironic if that were true. Um, so what's really going to happen? So what, you know, the, the big problem with media is not that it's it's not free; it's competition. There's just there's, as you say, there's lots and lots of people out there, and turns out that um, you know we that you know that, that all the news that's fit to print is not in fact in the in New York Times, nor could it be. There's a lot of stuff out there that was not covered by by traditional media, and it better to be covered by amateurs than not at all. So infinite amount of competition. You know, you can only charge for scarcity. Now we have abundance. It's, you know, that's the problem. You know, newspapers are losing their share of consumer attention. And when you lose your share of consumer attention, you tend to, you know, the ad, the ad money tends to go with it. And then there's Craigslist and classifieds. And then, you know, the, uh, the small matter of the recession and credit crisis and all that. So th- there is a thought out there that, um, you know, that a mistake was made 10 years ago, that the genie was let out of the bottle and that some Small number of people, probably involving the New York Times, you know, let their websites go free. And if that decision had not been made, if we could only reverse the clock and say, no, newspaper websites must be paid, that all this would be fine. Newspapers would be fine. The Seattle Post Intelligencer would still be in business. You know, um, none, no bank. You know, not the case. Not the case. Um, you know, because that meeting did happen, just not in the newspaper. Interesting. That meeting happened in the record labels, right? The record label says. We're gonna we're gonna hold the fort. We're gonna you know, we're gonna charge for music, you know, and we're gonna sue 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 and you know and copyright etc. Guess what? You know, the marketplace imposed the price of zero on music. At first, it was the pirates. Then it was the musicians themselves well, give, giving well, let away me, music. Let me ask you this question about that. You write a lot about China, which is a place where um, a, a nation, a huge marketplace where intellectual property is basically ignored completely. And There's actually no tradition of protecting intellectual property rights in China. Right. So we as, a Western so, concept. we as a society have made this choice to protect intellectual property rights. Um, yeah. What do you think about that choice? Like, so when you, you say we as a society, are you referring to the, to, to, the, about, the, the Disney lawyers? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's a question of – certainly there can be questions as to what extent, do, but – no, I, I don't. I think that we. I'm a, asking. Uh, what I'm asking is, do you think that this marketplace inevitability supersedes 
the laws such as they've been determined by whoever. What we're doing here is we're talking about both meanings of free. Free is in freedom and free is in no price. Now, in the case of music, it, it was combined, right? When the pirates pirated, you know, MP3s, Napster, whatever, they did both. They both sort of made it free as in unrestricted and free as in no price. Um, uh, but it doesn't have to be both ways. Um, the problem with intellectual property, as we had, is there was a one-size-fits-all model largely designed to serve the needs of the large corporations, for which whom I work. I, I hasten to add, my book is published by Disney. I work for Condé Nast. We protect copyright very fiercely. I su support that, guys, just in case you were listening. Um, but um, that size doesn't fit all. It so happens it doesn't even fit me. By day, my words are copyrighted and they're protected. By night, I give them all away. Everything I write online is in Creative Commons. I have an open source robotics company. We give away everything. You can credit me, credit or not, use it, misuse it, remix, mash it up, take it, build a company around it, make a living, you know, have fun, be my guest. I don't believe in protecting intellectual, prop intellectual property rights in, in that domain of my life because I think that by giving away my ideas, both gratis and Libra, that somehow the benefits will, will come back to me in one way or another, and um, so far, so good. It seems to be working fine. But um, when you look at the music out there that is quote-unquote pirated, the music that's traded on the peer-to-peer -peer file services, what if you could go back to the musicians and ask them, musician by musician, you cool with that or not? I'll just ask you, what, let's say, let's say uh, you know, um, what percentage of the music that is, that, is, that is exchanged on file trading do you think uh, do, do, for, do, do you think has a victim in the form of a musician who would rather it, it not be traded? I've probably a relatively small percentage, given that I think most musicians number they love making money from their music, but probably their number one goal is to spread their ideas, feelings, notes, etc. Tim O'Reilly, the uh, the book publisher, has you know, said something I think is quite brilliant about authors in particular. He says the enemy. Of, uh, of most authors is not piracy, but obscurity. And that's true for creatives of all sorts. You know, the enemy is, you know, the reality is, is that, is that the old model, you weren't going to get hurt. You weren't going to get signed to a label. You weren't going to get on radio. You just weren't going to be heard. So obscurity was kind of a given, you know, to say nothing of making, making a living off it. Um, these days, obscurity is really yours to control. I mean, if you're, if what you're doing is good and if you're good at marketing and you now have the channels, et cetera. So, you know, if you can create, use free to create celebrity and then figure out how to turn celebrity into a living, that is, that is the game of the 21st century. So human beings have this artistic impulse to paint buffaloes on cave walls and stuff like that. Um, what about other industries that are built on ideas um, rather than things um, that aren't driven by the artistic impulse. What is this? What is this competition and rush towards free in the world of ideas mean for um, uh, drug makers or even people that make things where the um, uh, where the cost of the materials you know tends towards zero? Yeah. So um, you know what we've discovered is that people. You know, have skills that we didn't measure, um, uh, energy that we weren't tapping, and talents that we didn't know. Um, and, you know, all it takes is creating Wikipedia and then suddenly, whoa, where did all those smart people come from? How did so much knowledge, you know, it was just lying out there waiting for someone to create this. Um, so let's start with open source software as an example. So open source software is both, is, 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 is in some sense, Libra and gratis, right? So, you know, you're, you're, you're free to use people's code and to build on it. Credit must be given, you know, licensing, et cetera. And it typically is distributed for free. Um, 
you know that's that shows that um, you know that this open platform of collaboration, largely for non-monetary reasons, can create amazing stuff. Linux, Apache, SQL, MySQL, etc. Um, I mentioned my company before. I have an open source robotics company. We do the same thing with hardware. We we release the printed circuit board files, the you know, schematics, the firmware, the software, the you know the instructions, you know the the parts list, everything. You know if you if you want to take our stuff. You know, you're a Chinese company, you want to take our stuff, you want to make it and sell it at much, much lower than we can, go for it. Won't stop you. Um, we think that the, that the trust in the community we've built around openness is going to reward us, and people would rather pay us 2.6 times the cost than some stranger they've, they've never known. But, you know, we'll see. So far, so good. It seems to be working. Um, how far can open innovation go? You know, can you, um, you know, you mentioned drugs. Um, I don't think, you know, that we're going to open source drug development, at least all the way through FDA approval. But, um, you know, there is some open source, um, you know, patient clinical trials um, as patients start to work together. You know, if, there, if, if there's a small group of sort of, a, you know, a niche, uh, you know, a very, a very um, sort of orf- orphan disease and the pharmaceutical companies aren't doing it for them, well, you know, you can start to gather information. You can start to um, at least you, – you can commission research. You can, you know, you can comb the existing research and do meta-analysis and things like that. So it is possible to sort of – Use the open innovation process to move things along towards a faster, cheaper, better outcome. Um, I don't, you know, I'm just not, I don't, I don't want to suggest this is a grand unified theory and, you know, that Detroit would be better open sourcing cars. But this, we're just at the beginning of what open innovation can do and um, free is a big part of that. So if we accept free as, uh, the march towards free as inevitable as you uh, largely posit, and we accept those uh, uh, positive things. What's the bad stuff that people just got to uh, get their head around now while they still can? Well, you know, if, if, if you're trying to sell something and your competitor's giving it away for free, um, you know, you may lose. Now, I would argue that there are ways to compete with free. And in the book, I talk about how Microsoft does that quite effectively. I'd argue there's ways to use free to make money, and that's the full freemium model. But there are... Definitely some companies out there who would rather not do either, who would rather just sell the product for a fair wage and, you know, for a fair price and, and leave it at that. And they hate competition, you know, getting back to the, the major labels would be an example of a clear loser. I think that the, the television networks right now, you know, as soon as the advertising figure out some, how to move to YouTube, I think television networks are going to lose. Newspapers are. I'm in the media business. We are clearly losing share and possibly money, um, you know, too. Um, so there's a lot of traditional institutions built around scarcity and monopoly access. Are, are losing, but this is due to, you know, the Internet. You know, it's not – I'm not wishing it to happen. I'm not prophesying it. I'm not – this is not a prescription. Free is not a wish. Free is simply a description of, of what's already been happening for decades now and trying to build an economic, economic model to explain it. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking all this time to be on The Sound of Young America. It was great to have you on the show. It was fun. Thanks so much. Chris Anderson's new book is Free, The Future of a Radical Price. He developed the book on his blog, thelongtail.com. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our editor is Nick White. Music provided by Dan Wally. You can email me at jesse at maximumfun.org. And if you would like to uh, subscribe to any of our awesome podcasts or check out our forum or our regularly updated blog, you can visit us on the web at maximumfun.org. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America.